Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we'll hear from Brussels about the latest setback for David Cameron as he tries to block the appointment of Jean-Claude Juncker as President of the European Commission. But we begin in Iraq, where Sunni insurgents have taken Mosul, the country's second largest city, and are battling the Iraqi army around Bakaba, just 60 kilometres from Baghdad. The insurgents are led by the extremist Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant, also known as the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, or ISIS. The fall of Mosul and the insurgents' march towards Baghdad has caused so much alarm in Washington that the United States has sent almost 300 troops to Baghdad to protect American personnel. More significantly, perhaps, Washington has started talking to Iraq's neighbours in Iran about possible cooperation to halt the insurgents. To discuss the situation, I'm joined from Tehran by Lara Marlowe, from Nicosia by our Middle East analyst Michael Jansen, and here in Dublin by Patrick Smith, foreign policy editor of the Irish Times. Michael Jansen, who are ISIS, and how have they become the leaders of this insurgency? Well, ISIS is a, an offshoot of the Iraqi movement called the Islamic State in Iraq, which was formed during the period of U.S. Um, occupation of Iraq. And it moved into Syria when there was a vacuum in northern Syria and seized a certain number of cities and towns and also did battle with other insurgent groups in northern Syria as well as the government. It is led by a man who has been long known to have connections with al-Qaeda. The Islamic State in Iraq and Syria has actually been expelled by al-Qaeda as being too extreme. And wherever it occupies a city or town, it imposes its version of Islamic law, which is very, very strict, and begins to abuse the local population. Uh, it forces people to uh, follow its uh, dictates in terms of going to prayers regularly, particularly men. It restricts women to the house and forces them to cover their faces. Any kind of activity that they consider to be anti-Islamic is punished with extreme physical abuse, sometimes by uh, shooting or execution by decapitation. And they also cut off hands of thieves and they extort money from merchants. Michael, these, uh, ISIS, excuse me for interrupting, but ISIS are not the only people involved in this insurgency. Is that not true? So I'm wondering how did they emerge as the leaders of this insurgency? Well, they aren't the only people. What has happened is ISIS has taken advantage and exploited uh, uh, Sunni resentment against the Shia-led government in Baghdad. Lara Marlow, Iran is Iraq's most important neighbour and a key ally of Nouri al-Maliki's Shia-led government in Baghdad. How are the latest developments being viewed in Tehran? The Iranians seem to be much less alarmed by the ISIS offensive uh, than the Americans are. I mean, they, they hate ISIS. They, they, they say that these are fanatics and, and so on, which I suppose they probably are. But um, they say that it's just a few tons of thousands of men and they don't pose a real threat either to Iraq or to Iran. 
they say they don't want any foreign inter- intervention in Iraq. They say that they will send assistance if uh, Maliki requests it, though. Um, there is tomorrow going to be a, a so-called student demonstration in front of the Iraqi embassy here in Tehran, which I'm, I plan to go to. So maybe they are trying to work up popular opinion a little bit against uh, the, the Sunni fundamentalist uh, jihadis. Uh, but up until now, it's been, it's been fairly low-key. And American and Iranian officials, as I mentioned, they've been talking in Geneva about possible cooperation on Iraq. How far do you think we can expect that cooperation to go? They have cooperated in the past in Afghanistan and even in Iraq, although it's never received the sort of publicity that it's, it's receiving now. Uh, I, I think... It would be relatively limited. I talked to Mastermay Ebtekar, who was uh, the spokeswoman for the hostage takers at the American Embassy in 1979. She is now one of the vice presidents of, of Iran, and she said um, she doesn't expect Iran and America to suddenly become best friends or, or really close allies, but on, on a very practical uh, sort of point-by-point basis, they could work together. Um, I know that John Kerry, uh, U.S. Secretary of State, has not even ruled out military cooperation. Um, I find that pretty pretty far-fetched. I, I really can't imagine uh, Iran and, and the U.S. exchanging military information, although they might exchange intelligence about ISIS. I could see the U.S., for example, providing uh, map coordinates to Iran if they could be, you know, some kind of satellite uh, intelligence, that sort of thing, about ISIS positions, uh, that, that sort of thing, possibly very precise, concrete details. Um, I don't think they're going to be sharing each other's military secrets. There have, Lara, been some suggestions that Washington and Tehran could work together to try to engineer Maliki's replacement as Iraqi prime minister. Do you think this is plausible? No. Uh, absolutely not. The, the, uh, the Iranians like Nouri al-Maliki very, very much. I mean, he, he's their man. And I, I interviewed a, a military intelligence source the other day, and he said, yeah, you know, the Americans want, want Maliki to share power. Why should he share power? He won the election. So that's very much the attitude here. Uh, and, and I think that that's the sort of American, what the Iranians would call American arrogance, that they so detest about America, this idea that, you know, you, you, you sort of choose this guy, he gets elected as prime minister of Iraq, and then you don't like him anymore, you don't like his policies, so you, you somehow get rid of him. But the U.S. has a very sorry history of getting rid of people in the Middle East, and even, even today I heard several times mention of Mohammad Mossadegh, who was overthrown by the CIA and MI6 back in 1950. And the wound is still fresh here. So I, I really cannot imagine the Iranians ever in any way approving any kind of plot to get rid of Noyal Maliki. Patty Smith, uh, we've seen Britain announce this week that it's reopening its embassy in Tehran, and the US and Iran, we've heard, are talking about working together uh, over Iraq. How important are these developments geopolitically? Well, I, I would agree with, with Lara that the possibility of military cooperation between the Americans and the, the uh, Iranians is, is, is slim to nil. In fact, the White House and the Defense Department in, in Washington issued statements shortly after Kerry repudiating what he'd said and said there was no co- question of cooperation and, and there was already uh, political flack coming from the Republicans about the possibility. Uh, I think that the, the reopening of the embassy, the British embassy and, and, and 
the U.S. talks, though, do uh, reflect a, a, a trend that has happened over the last few months, which is a warming of relations with the Rouhani uh, um, regime, uh, which are important, uh, that they're most obviously reflected in the talks going on about uh, Iran's nuclear program, uh, which uh, are, are stalled at the moment, but uh, are still progressing by all accounts. So it is, it is um, part of the same process. Uh, this whole mess in Iraq, Paddy, is this a direct consequence, would you say, of the American invasion in 2003, or is Tony Blair right when he says the whole thing would have happened anyway? Well, Blair's argument uh, was that that the um, Arab Spring would have happened in Iraq even if they hadn't overthrown Hussein, and that there would have been a, a um, the same situation uh, would have occurred. You would have had the, the flowering of all of these um, uh, fundamentalist groups. Uh, the only trouble with that argument is that the hundred thousand dead who were were. Uh, the result of the American uh, invasion uh, of um, uh, Iraq, and he he sort of can't really write that out of history. It's not really possible to obliterate that by saying it would have happened anyway. Lara Marley, you've reported both from Iraq and from Washington. What do you think? I think, as um, I believe it was Boris Johnson, the mayor of London, said that Tony Blair needs his head checked. Um, you know, the, the 2003 invasion brought the Shia Muslims to power in Iraq. They would not be running the country today. Uh, you know, well, who knows what would have happened in the meantime. But that is what, what brought them to power. It's what gave Iran such tremendous influence in Iraq. Um, and it also led to the, the first, what one might call the first civil war between Shia and Sunni in Iraq in 2006 was the worst year of it. Um, and what's happening now is in, in some sense a, a replay of that uh, inter-confessional inter um, strife. Remember, too, that the 2003 invasion is what created al-Qaeda in Iraq, um, the extremist group which, which eventually, as Michael explained to us, uh, burgeoned into into ISIS. So, um, no, I think that argument just does not stand up. Michael Jansen, you've been writing in the Irish Times that Western policy over decades has fueled sectarian divisions in the Middle East. Why is that? Well, the Western powers uh, never like the Arab nationalists who won independence from the Western colonial states. And they tried to counter the Arab nationalists who um, had a pan-Arab agenda of uniting the Arabs, at least in policy, if not in fact, on the ground. And um, that policy of the West was to promote uh, the fundamentalists, particularly the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, but also the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria and elsewhere, and um, uh, Muslim Brotherhood offshoot parties in Yemen, and um, and in Iraq, and uh, this um, promotion of these parties gave them a a fairly strong base. And uh, the Arab nationalists, uh, the West, uh, disliked them for several reasons. One is that they became non-aligned during the Cold War, and another reason was that they also adopted socialist agendas on the economic front. And a third reason was that they opposed Israel. Now and th the governments in the Arab countries failed, actually, to properly govern their countries. 
after independence, and this left them exposed to uh, external pressures and power play. Now that we have seen this conflict between uh, Sunni and Shia uh, in a number of parts of the region, do you see any possibility of putting this sectarian genie back into the bottle? Well, I, th- I think that's the only solution for the, for the Middle East, is to put the sectarian genie back in the bottle. And that goes for Shia fundamentalists who are now ruling Iraq, as well as Sunni fundamentalists. The Egyptians have actually managed to put the Muslim Brotherhood genie back into the bottle. and um, they In a rather are, violent way, if I may say so, Michael. Yes, I know. They have done it in a violent way, but the Muslim Brotherhood has also... perpetrated violence throughout its history, uh, attempting to assassinate Egyptian prime ministers and also to carry out acts of terrorism in Egyptian cities and towns. And now they are also uh, carrying forth a campaign in the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, uh, Lara, can I bring you in here on this question of the uh, Sunni-Shia sectarian conflict? Do you see, how do you see this conflict being resolved or that genie being put back in the bottle? Um, I'm not sure you can put the genie back into the bottle, but I think that to the extent that um, the leadership that the U.S. and the West can foster uh, responsible, um, intelligent leadership in these countries and get, for example, there's been talk of a Saudi-Iranian rapprochement recently. If, if the Saudis would stop supporting, would stop all support going to these tax theory Wahhabi Sunni fundamentalists, um, which, which they have been doing on a huge scale, uh, if they would stop that, if, if the Iranians... You know, if there was just more international cooperation, dialogue, that sort of thing, I I think it it would have to go from the top down, somehow educate people, uh, stop the television broadcasts. You know, for heaven's sake, there are dozens of satellite television programs, uh, Sunni Muslim fundamentalist ones, saying that all Shia are are, um, infidels and must be killed. And, And now you've got Shia programs saying that of Sunnis, you know. Stop the propaganda, stop the satellite TV. I know it reeks of, of censorship, but, you know, I think hate speech is a crime in any country, isn't it? So, you know, there, there are measures that can be taken that way. Um, you need to educate people and you need good leadership in these countries. Finally, uh, Michael, uh, how concerned do you think the government in Baghdad ought to be about this Sunni insurgency? I think they must be very concerned. Uh, it is a threat. They haven't been able even to drive the the ISIS and its allies out of the towns of Ramadi and uh, Fallujah, which are in the uh, Sunni majority province of Anbar in the west. And now they have these same people taking over, taking power in much bigger cities, much more important and strategic cities, in at least four provinces. So it is a very dangerous situation. Michael Jansen in Nicosia, Lara Marlowe in Tehran, and Paddy Smith here in Dublin. Thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. British Prime Minister David Cameron's campaign to block former Luxembourg Prime Minister Jean-Claude Juncker from becoming President of the European Commission has run into choppy waters. It emerged this week that Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel wants to resolve the issue at a meeting of EU leaders in Brussels on June 26th, a move that makes it harder for Mr Cameron to secure the blocking minority he needs. 
British officials have let it be known that both 10 Downing Street and the British ambassador to the EU are refusing to take Mr Juncker's calls. So the stage is set for a big bust-up in Brussels. So what happens next? To find out, I'm joined from Brussels by our European correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, and Paddy Smith is still with me here in studio. Suzanne, if he looks like failing in his bid to block Mr Juncker, what has David Cameron done wrong? Um, Well, I think he he may have backed himself into a corner politically on this issue. Uh, Since the European elections, um, David Cameron, and indeed, it has to be said, the other main parties in Britain, have really gone behind this this narrative of of Juncker being an unsuitable candidate, of being too federalist. Um, And they've really, they've staked all on this, in a sense. The British press have a very important role to play here. Uh, because it has been covering the issue, really. Er, er, most papers in Britain have been covering it thoroughly in the last few weeks. Um, obviously, ironically, um, a lot of commentators in Brussels have pointed out the fact that the British media barely covered the Spitz and candidate process before the elections, but now, but now they are. But, but what that has, has, what's happened because of that is that there's a huge domestic pressure on Mr Cameron, and it now appears to be... It, it's quite unsure about how he is going to... To, to get out of this without being humiliated if Mr Juncker becomes the next European Commission president. Now, his story seems to have changed, Suzanne, because, I mean, as you mentioned, uh, the objection, first of all, was that uh, Jean-Claude Juncker was a figure from the 80s, that he was a federalist, that he smokes, he drinks, he speaks too many languages, he's generally whatever is unacceptable to little Englanders. But now uh, Mr Cameron has started uh, to peddle a much more lofty line, that it's actually all about uh, the institutional battle between the European Council and the Parliament. So what is the story? Yes, so people have pointed out that every single time there's a new Commission President, Britain has has moved to block block that President, going back years. But this time it's different because we've got the Spitzing candidate system for the first time. Um, It was introduced in the Lisbon Treaty, but there's very ambiguous wording surrounding it. So Mr Cameron has got support from from certain member states about his scepticism about this project, because it doesn't actually say in the the EU treaties that, you know, the biggest political group has a candidate and then that candidate becomes the president of the commission. So to an extent, it's a bit of the boy who cried wolf in a sense. People in Brussels have kind of got tired of listening to Britain, complaining, etc., but in, in this situation, they may actually have a point that um, it's not clear that this is the, it's the system that, that, that should be adopted by, by member states and by the EU institutions in choosing a commission president. Um, but it looks like in the last few days, he seems to have lost some of the support he thought he was garnering. Obviously, the meeting in Sweden was key here, and a kind of mini-summit between four, four leaders. But I think when that didn't yield anything specific, well, then Cameron looked a bit more like he could, have been in tr- could be in trouble on this issue. And why is it that, uh, that we believe that uh, making this decision next week uh, makes it more likely that Jean-Claude Juncker will, in fact, be appointed the uh, Commission President? Mm. Well, what I'm hearing here is that um, what might happen now is that Merkel in particular is pushing um, the idea that just the European Commission president will be decided first. Now, usually this is done in a package where all the top jobs are kind of, you know, garnered out and, and there's a debate about the, the whole package of jobs. But this seems to be what, what, what Merkel in particular is pushing for. The longer this goes on... Um, the more nasty it could become and the more uh, divisive it could become. So what we might see next week is, is the nomination of a European Commission president, but, but no mention at this point of the other top jobs, the head of the European Council and uh, Catherine Ashton's successor as the EU foreign policy chief. 
Mr Cameron has warned that appointing Jean-Claude Juncker could make a British exit from the European Union more likely. But that threat doesn't appear to be working, does it? Yeah. I mean, what's, what's really remarkable in Brussels is, is the level of um, disdain, I suppose, against Britain and Cameron. And we're in the Brussels bubble. People seem to have got tired with Britain complaining. And um, we had a lot of uh, articles in the international press in, in Germany and France uh, over the last few weeks basically saying to Britain, just go. You know, if you keep complaining, we can't be hold ho- held hostage by you. So that's very much the atmosphere at the moment. But this, this is all being, you know, this is all predicated on, on Chancellor Merkel's, Chancellor Merkel's point of view. Um, you know, at the beginning of this process, she was at best lukewarm about it. But now she seems, because of domestic pressure and because pressure from her co- junior coalition partner, she seems to have really thrown her support behind Jean-Claude Juncker. And in a sense, I think the pack has now run with, with Angela Merkel. And in that sense, um, Mr Cameron is on the losing foot at the moment. Uh, Paddy Smith, uh, Suzanne, writing in the Irish Times, has said the following. Even its harshest critics accept that Britain provides an important counterbalance to the large, more federal federalist continental member states. Rather than Britain holding Europe hostage, EU citizens could rightly ask why the rest of the Union is being forced to adopt a candidate because of Germany's dogged attachment to a system many member states privately oppose. Do you agree? No, I, I don't agree. I think I think that there's a considerable difference between saying, for example, and, and, and generally there would be agreement that it's in Ireland's interest for for Britain to remain in the, in the EU, that we would be, our interests would be hurt if Britain leaves for a, for a whole variety of, uh, of reasons, not least the fact that sometimes we're on the same side of, of uh, arguments. Uh, and, this is, and, and saying, on the other hand, that we must do whatever the Brits want us to do. And um, the Merkel used the term blackmail when she talked about um, Cameron's comments about the, the, the threat to leave the EU. It's like the small boy walking off the pitch with his football if he doesn't get to play uh, by his rules. And there is a tendency, I think, uh, reflected um, a lot of capitals are, are very angry with the British the way that they are not team players. They're not prepared uh, to accept that, that occasionally they're in a minority. Now, does David Cameron have a point when he says that the Parliament is over-interpreting the Lisbon Treaty and making a power grab? Uh, Yeah, he does have a point that this is a power grab. Whether it's an unacceptable power grab or not is another matter. If you believe that it's important that the uh, European Union's democratic credentials are, are enhanced... Uh, you would accept that the Parliament should be given more of a say in in certain things. And this was one way in which the Parliament could be given a greater influence and and, and therefore create greater democratic accountability. So it is a power grab by the Parliament, but it's not necessarily unacceptable. Uh, Suzanne, how do you think that uh, this can be resolved in Brussels? I mean, do you think that there's some kind of a formula that they can come up with which will keep everybody sweet? I mean, it's all going to be down to what other jobs um, are going now. And I think if if Britain will definitely be given, I mean, he may have, Cameron may have burned his bridges to some extent with European capitals. But I think if Juncker goes ahead as a candidate, he may have some more sway over the other appointments. Crucial here would be the British commissioner. Um, You know, he wants a certain portfolio in the new commission, maybe internal markets something like that. A lot of people in Brussels are, are opposed to that. So that would be a, a key factor for, for Mr. Cameron. But I mean, I think, and, and Paddy's right there in saying, you know, he, he kind of threw his toy there to the pram in a sense. But the reality is, because the media have gone so strong on this in Britain, like it or not, 
Um, I think that the appointment of Jean-Claude Juncker is undoubtedly going to galvanise uh, anti-EU feeling. Um, I don't think it's just an empty threat by Cameron. Um, and, I mean, there's people here talking about, will, will Cameron survive this? You know, people are saying here well, things like, well, we've got Cameron, it would be worse if we got Boris Johnson. I mean, this, this, these are the kind of conversations people are having, that, you know, Cameron is going to be extremely weakened after this because his critics, and particularly people like you, Kip, are going to say, well, if you can't even get, you know, agreement on something that you actually have, have a, a, you know, a fair enough point on, how on earth are you going to renegotiate anything with Europe over the next few years? Why don't we just go ahead and have a referendum? So he's really faced with a very sticky situation if, if Juncker is appointed in the next few weeks. And he's, he's going to have to, to stand up in the House of Commons and, and explain that. Paddy, should uh, David Cameron's European partners be swayed by those fears? I don't think so. I think everybody's aware that, that Cameron took a decision a few weeks ago uh, that uh, he was going to find an issue on which he could come back from Europe and say, I, I have a, a win in my pocket. And, and frankly, I don't think he's particularly interested in this particular issue, but he, th- he thought he could win it. Uh, he's made a serious political miscalculation, and I don't think people are particularly sympathetic. Uh, finally, Suzanne, is, should Jean-Claude Juncker actually falter at the last minute? Who's it going to be instead? Yeah, I mean, I think that's quite interesting because if, if you look at the language from people like Merkel and even Andrew Kenny, they, they, they seem to say all the time, Jean-Claude Juncker is the candidate. So, for example, if he was to withdraw as a candidate, maybe there would be a way of, you know, of pushing somebody else in. But from like what who? I can see, that is the only way that Jean-Claude Juncker won't become, you know, the, the commission president if he actually withdraws himself with pressure from the parliament. The other issue is, again, the ambiguity in the treaty, but yes, the member states have to suggest somebody in the council formation but it has to be passed by the parliament so this is another reason why somebody like Andrew Kenny wouldn't go forward because he knows he wouldn't get the get the support in the parliament because they've said they'll back Juncker so um, because of the specific it's just it's different than it has been any other time because of the specific spits and gander data process um, Angela Merkel in particular will look extremely weakened if she consents to anyone else bar Juncker taking this post and if Juncker were to withdraw who do we think it's going to be I mean, people are, I mean, maybe Schultz was, well, Martin Schultz, another, uh, you know, the German candidate for the second largest party, he performed extremely well in the debates. Um, and a lot of people say privately here he probably would have been a better candidate for Jean-Claude Juncker. But if they don't, if, if, if there's an acceptance not to go the Spitzing candidate route, which I think is unlikely, well, then we're probably looking at um, potentially uh, the Danish prime minister, Helen Horning Schmidt, um, she's a favourite of the Brit- British. She's married to Neil Kinnock's uh, son, um, and she's under quite a bit of domestic pressure at home, so she might be a, a possibility. And um, obviously the gender balance, that would be, be something in her favour as well. But, uh, Paddy, the, uh, the treaty does say that the leaders have to take account of the outcome of the European election. And given that uh, the European People's Party, the centre-right uh, group, uh, emerges the larger party than the Social Democrats, and both of the people that uh, Suzanne has mentioned are Social Democrats, do you think that, uh, that they could actually be appointed? I, th- I think it's possible. I think it, it comes back to what uh, what uh, Suzanne was saying earlier on about the division of the other post, and particularly Van Rompuy's post as as president of the of the European Council. Uh, if a Social Democrat got the Commission president, you, the EPP could take the the presidency of the Council. Suzanne Lynch in Brussels and Paddy Smith here in Dublin. Thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can read more about the stories we've been talking about on irishtimes.com and you can let us know what you think on worldview at irishtimes.com.
From producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer James Davis, and from me, Dennis Taunton, goodbye.